Welcome to Product Coffee, where product professionals from Ibotta share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of Joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. I'm one of your co-hosts, Patrick Kuchkowski. Kevin Gentry. I'm Jake Worland. Jamie Douglas. Today we're going to be kicking off our topic, Product at Scale, a multi-part series discussing growth and product at different size companies. So for today, we figured we would talk a little bit more about the differences between a smaller size startup and what it means to be a product professional there, and the differences that we have started to see as Ibotta continues to scale, especially now that we are Denver's first, or not first, but current unicorn, valued at over a billion dollars. Is it first or is it? No, because who's first? Twilio Sengrid. Sengrid is probably first. Let's just say we're first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Sengrid got acquired. Yeah. They're a Silicon Valley company. Yeah. Yeah. That's only. There's been a couple, but there, there's a few, but it's rare. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, Yeah. I mean, since I've been at Ibotta, we have seen so much growth. I just remember when I first started, everyone was like crazy how much it's changed and yeah. like if only they could see where we are now yeah. i mean i've uh, been here a year and i don't recognize half the people in the yeah office i know it's just nuts yeah we used to have one product manager and um and then and brian who was also kind of doing product as uh-huh. he is wont to do and um so yeah she was there briefly overlapped and then after that i think we had maybe one or two other product people for a while and now we're at Quite the 12 or 13. Yeah. Moving to 30. Yeah. Soon well, yeah. Well, it was, I was listening to an interesting podcast um, on Mind the Product where they're talking with Ken Norton about when to bring in product professionals. And they really did emphasize that the CEO is, you know, product manager zero. Mm-hmm. And then it's as you're kind of going through that series A, series B, that's when you start bringing in product managers because then you can actually give them domain areas in order to focus on and actually let you grow up. And so I think that's been one of the biggest things I've seen is as we continue to grow, it becomes more about instead of it being the CEO making that decision, it's okay, you're going to have the autonomy to handle everything on the front end and maybe we'll hire another PM to handle everything on the back end. Yeah. Then as you grow and grow and grow, no longer do you have, oh, you're just the front end product manager. Now you're the web product manager. Kind of thing. Right, you start to specialize a, problem, a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. yeah, and I think begs an interesting question. I think at least the majority of us have had some experience at a very small company. Mm-hmm. At what point does it become more efficient to start to specialize and, and provide that specialization for people, maybe by role or by problem space or by function area? And at what point does it start to lose that increase or that gain in efficiency? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard a number of people who are in that one product manager in those days. Uh, lament how you know things used to happen much faster it was literally tapping an engineer on the shoulder and being like what if we tried this mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know the next day you'd see it and then you you know see that color change for example and then be like yeah that didn't work so mm-hmm. I do think there is a degree of um, you know not necessarily efficiency but at least like speed to testing or speed to like seeing your changes live in some totally. in some way yeah well I think why because it, there's so much more dependencies now, right? Like there's so many more different services doing things or different teams working in areas that you make a change. Like how do you know that it's not going to affect the other one? Right. It makes it much harder to kind of develop faster. 
but um, I, I, there's ways to get around that, right? I mean, to try to carve out those silos well enough that you can still be autonomous and still speak to the right systems. Yeah. But when you're all working in one app, I mean, you still have that big dependency. Right, right. I mean, that's kind of the yeah. core value prop of a microsystem, or sorry, microservice architecture, yeah. right? You well, create those kind of, you, you get rid of the kind of points of single points of failure. Right. And to kind of answer your question, Jamie, in my opinion, the reason and the win, the point at which you're having detrimental gains is really if you can no longer describe the interactions in 30 seconds. So it's like, what is it you're building? And if it takes longer than 30 seconds, or if you're trying to describe the problems you're having in there, and you can't do it in 30 seconds, then you're probably needing to bring in someone else. That's interesting. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the, the really interesting benefits of starting to specialize is you get to go deeper, right? You can say, like, focus on the registration flow. Mm -hmm. And as, like, a single PM company, you don't have the luxury of spending mm -hmm. a quarter, two quarters, three quarters just thinking about download, register, activate, and, you know, yeah. to, that, to, that first, yeah. to that first point. Whereas, you know, now we have the luxury of being yeah. able to do that, and I think that that has its pros and cons, right? Yeah. Pros being, yes, we can go grow the company up, as you were saying, but I think con being we start to create these silos and dependencies, and how do you manage those yeah. as a company grows and tries to preserve that really fast learning culture? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that's one of the biggest challenges yeah. of a scaling company. Yeah, well, you mentioned focus. Like, I think that's a key, like, luxury that we have now <laughs> is yeah. to focus. As PMs, you're always trying to ruthlessly prioritize, and I think just even having more and more team and more people working on a specific area, um, you can now then, it's clear what you can go do and impact versus if you have like a wide swath of things that you're prioritizing, it becomes much more challenging. Right. Well, and that almost fits on what we're, I feel like what we're struggling with right now at our scale is you don't have one great way to go look at everyone's roadmaps necessarily yeah. and yeah. understand the dependencies. Mm -hmm. You know, when it was a, a three or four person product team, you can quickly get in a room and discuss all your trade-offs. Exactly. In fact, yeah. I, I recall a few times where we did just mm -hmm. that, yeah. but you know, now it's like, oh, well, I need a whole new software solution just to map out what my right. roadmap is and how it conflicts with Jamie's roadmap. And It's almost like we're having that conversation at the subgroup level, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have these, like, say, three groups, and then within those groups you have two or three subgroups each like that's where you can still have those three to four p.m conversations that i think are really really valuable like how do you preserve that but how do you also make sure that you can still see the whole board to some degree or like okay like mm -hmm. i really know what trade-offs i'm making with jamie's squad or with patrick's squad or whatever uh, but how do i know what trade-offs i'm implicitly making with kevin's squad which mm -hmm. may be in a completely different problem space or the ones that you're not even thinking of. <laughs> yeah, totally. That too. Yeah. As well. Yeah. I think it also forces you to be a little bit more creative about like what your initial you know, case study or MVP is going to be. So mm -hmm. if you know that anything you want to put out there to really like get just some initial feedback and some you know initial data, it might make you make a different decision as opposed to building out like you know, working with Jake's team to get the full solution in place and, like, really testing it correctly, it just, like, forces you to be a little bit more adaptive to, like, all right, what's a different way I could slice this to make sure that I'm not causing this dependency on someone else or not, um, you know, forcing someone else to 
derail the roadmap for six weeks so that yeah. I can get this thing out it's there. A, it's a, you bring up a really interesting point that made me think of a parallel to a small business, whereas you want to build the most lightweight MVP possible because your scarce resource is engineering and you don't want to walk down this road, right, to like find out that you walked down the wrong road. I mean, you still want, you still have that same thought or that same risk in a large business, but I think you bring up a really good point. Like, I want to get a really simple MVP out there so I don't realize I'm about to derail some other team's roadmap. I don't know, there's just a parallel that came up mm-hmm. in yeah. my mind. Yeah, they did that with payments well, I remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually build a web app as opposed to a mobile app as a way of initially building out a proof of concept because mm-hmm. of resources and dependencies and that kind of thing. So. Well, and speaking of resources, um, I know earlier we were chatting about the differences in a small company and a large company where maybe you only have a handful of engineers and creative ways that people try and solve that. And I know one tactic I've almost always seen at small companies that seems to blow up in our faces is the desire to move quickly, and then you outsource a lot of that engineering work. Mm-hmm. So is that something you can do at scale? And I know here at Ibotta, we tend to shy away from having remote teams but has anyone had experience in a small company moving to a large company with success there? In yeah. terms of yeah. taking the remote concept from a small company to a large company? Yeah. That's a good question. I think I, I've been at a company that was small at first, you know, 40 size total, and then, you know, technology teams probably like 20 per, uh, people, and growing and acquiring companies across the sea, you know, overseas, like, working with Tel Aviv office, working with like London office and different time zone shift. And that becomes a little more challenging. And we kind of, um, we mentioned earlier, um, having to stick to requirements on like a document and like, I think, was that you Patrick that said that? Yeah, I was gonna say, I know one of the problems I had was um, we had remote teams in India and because of the time difference, there wasn't the ability to get into a room and to ideate and come up with mm. new solutions. And so oftentimes what was happening is I would invent something and have this whole product brief, and I think it was great. I read a bunch of stories, and then the team would go and build it, and I'd come back to it you know, two days later, and it's, oh, well, we did exactly what the acceptance mm-hmm. criteria were on that story. Yeah. And so we didn't think that this button needs to actually be usable because you didn't <laughs> say it needs to be usable. I mean, it's the classic yeah. agency model, right? Like the agency yeah. is only going to do exactly what you tell them to do because that's what they're billing you for. Right? Yeah. They're not going to go, they're not going to make assumptions about what you want if there's a gap in your requirements or AC because well, that, yeah. that's extra work for them and they don't get paid for that. Well, that makes sense if it's a, um, like a, a a freelance agency, yeah, right. right? But what if it's like a part of the company? Yeah, I think it's really hard because it almost sets you up for a waterfall process, right? Like Patrick, to your point, you're in this room by yourself, maybe with one other person locally, and you're coming up with this grand idea, and then you hand it off to a remote yeah. engineering team. And if the time zone's really different, you're like, all right, talk to you in after 12 hours yeah. after you spent a number of hours working on this yeah. thing. And it's really hard to so, have that yeah. in-the-room experience where you just whiteboard it out and talk through the scenarios, the use cases, the risks, the technological opportunities. Like, it's, It just makes it harder. I think I, I've definitely been in that scenario where it's, it's more challenging and it, you, there's not much good product that comes from that. Yeah. Um, well, where I've, I've seen that, yeah. where I've seen that be more successful is um, when we we acquired a, uh, a London company there, and we 
I flew over there for like two weeks. So nice. for two weeks, I was embedded with that team. Yeah, I kind of you know, um, you know, built that empathy with the team a bit. Understood where they're coming from. Getting acquired by a larger company. Yeah, that, and then the need to kind of innovate fast was pretty strong there, which was exciting. And then kind of pulling them back into focus on what we we're trying to build and doing all that within like a two week time frame and coming up with great ideas. That was very useful because then I felt more comfortable in that trade-off where, you know, we've already kind of aligned and, and set a uh, context set. So then every kind of, I mean, we'd have stand-ups in the morning, mm-hmm. but it would be like their afternoon, you know, mm-hmm. like their three or four, and it would be yeah. like my like seven. It'd be like, <laughs> what am I going to work on today? Oh, today. what did you do today? <laughs> exactly. What did you yeah, do today? What are you going to work on tomorrow? Right. It's definitely a strange experience. Yeah. I'm sure you spend like all day on Google Hangouts or Zoom yeah, or exactly. whatever video conferencing tool you've got. You have to be really good at, um, communication um, online, right? Like whether yeah. that's Zoom or documentation yeah. or Slack or email. You yeah. have to be really crisp and good at Yeah, um, I found the language documentation yeah. was key. Yeah. Like we would create these central sources of truth that had fully baked requirements and designs and decision logs so everyone could see and self-serve essentially. Yeah. Because every like that's people what, are that's doing the point work. where we're getting at now, right? Like, Absolutely. I, mean, I feel like yeah, I, I've gotten a lot of people that are new hires that have really appreciated our documentation here. Yeah, which I've never been in a company that has documented as well as we have, even though there's a lot more that we that can we could do. do. Yeah. Do you find that people actually read the documentation? I though? do actually. <laughs> uh, maybe not stakeholders as much. Yeah. But <laughs> I think they read it when they need it. Yeah. They don't. Like new hires. Like yeah. I've been very successful with that where we have a lot of new hires. We have really good documentation on how our squad works and all of that. And mm-hmm. they, they go straight to that because they want to learn fast and that's yeah. the place to do it. Right. Yeah. right. Um, but yeah, like stakeholders reading a product <laughs> brief, maybe not so much like that. Maybe will require a meeting or participation. Mm-hmm or a request for like a sign off or something so they yeah. can go do their due diligence but, but I still think it's valuable yeah right because yeah. when you need it you really exactly need it. yeah and when you don't need it like people don't read it like okay whatever but in those moments yes. <laughs> when you have a debate about a decision yeah. you may have made yeah. six weeks ago it comes in the clutch it feels yeah. like it's in some ways like your legal evidence <laughs> it is right <laughs> like there was a precedent yeah. we established it together <laughs> yeah. yeah well why don't we document well at smaller companies then and is it just because we're moving too quickly or I, I think that it's also like a time suck right I mean time maybe suck. I don't I know if it is if, if everyone's in the same office yeah. or in the same building I think at this at that level you can keep it in your head a lot easier than now when we have this very big microservice system that we're trying to build out. Like I don't know half the services that the company has at the moment. Yeah. And at that point it's just too big to really be able to maintain in a conversation. like you can have a one conversation based exchange with someone about your product at a small company. Like this is what we're building, this is why we're building it, and we'll build the other stuff later. Great. I also think there's the shared office space um, component to it too. You know, when you're 40 people in one room, like there is a shared knowledge. You guys all have a shared understanding of what everyone is working towards versus um, because we are at the size we're at and we are in different departments and different parts of the building, it's it's hard to have that same level of visibility. So it's like there's a shared, perhaps it's assuming, but at least a shared understanding when you're in a smaller company that you know you can kind of depend on and so maybe you don't need as much documentation yeah i think to carry that point on it's like ibotta has multiple businesses 
-hmm. We have ad products. We have redemption. We have whatever, right? Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. at a small company, it's generally just one business line. Right. So everyone's oriented around that one business line, and everyone has a common understanding of what's going on and where the company's going. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mm -hmm. today, like, yeah, I have a a basic idea of the ad products roadmap, but that's because you and I have a conversation. Right. Right. But, like, there may be other parts of the business where I'm just very much in the dark. That's because it's a totally different business line. Well, and I would almost contend, especially for our listeners, that a true sign of maturity with a product professional and in a product organization is having that documentation regardless of size. Yeah. Uh, And in particular, I find it incredibly valuable to write down my thoughts and to describe what I'm trying to build. It's it's very easy to get into a room and whiteboard and like throw mm-hmm. out ideas and be like, yeah. yes, we're going to go build that. Yeah. But until you put you know pen to paper, mm-hmm. you're not going to realize, oh, this is really a dumb idea. Or it's going to take us nine months to do it. Yeah. But it forces you to do that due diligence on your idea, right? Like you can definitely, yeah. It's like having a template of things that you're asking of each of your products and then making sure that you're answering those the right way I think that's very valuable I think the whiteboarding session you jump to what's fun yeah right and like if you have that template you know you can make sure that you're thinking about risks you're thinking about dependencies exactly about timelines kind of like mundane probably isn't the right word but it's the less exciting part of the job as opposed (laughs) to like what could we do like how what cool thing could we make and what change could we bring Mm -hmm. yeah Makes sense. Well, <laughs> what other challenges do you guys have um, today that you didn't have a year ago? So, getting comfortable with uncertainty mm-hmm. and wrestling and sitting with that is, and because there is this flexibility to work on something for multiple quarters, oftentimes. So it's. In a small company, it's all about go, 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 go. Yeah. And you have to be shipping something constantly because you're trying to either achieve product market fit mm-hmm. or trying to you know outpace your competitors, something like that. So you don't have a week to lose. You know, right now it's, oh, well, we just rolled out this feature. We can ideate. We can change it. And it's causing X percentage lift. But back in mind, we're wanting to do something different. So if we have this realm of so many possibilities, where do I start? Yeah. You know, what is the best way? And so it's... You know, sitting there, kind of wrangling and wrestling with that idea, and just being uncertain, being like, "This might be a really dumb idea." Yeah. Well, I think the other angle of uncertainty that I think about at a company the size of Ibotta is, you it, you may own a problem space, but we have to be comfortable not being in the room every time a decision is made that impacts that problem space. Mm-hmm. Like, can we trust another team to make the right trust, call? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point. This, that's something that we really need to focus on as a company in how we grow and maintaining our ability to deliver good product is can we trust other teams to do the right thing even when we're not in the room to give an opinion or talk about what we know about that problem space. Well, that gets back to PM zero <laughs> versus you know having multiple, like an entire product team. It's like it really is a leap of faith at some point mm-hmm. that you can hand over the reins to other people and to make good decisions on your behalf. Mm-hmm. So fostering trust as an organization is probably one of the most crucial parts mm-hmm. of success, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it really describes why founder-led companies, there's always an inflection point where they have to hand off mm-hmm. a little bit of that trust and mm-hmm. how challenging that can be for them. Yeah. Yeah. What are other 
what are other examples of uh, that that we can uh, alleviate that uncertainty? I mean, naturally, I think documenting does go a long way. Right. Um, I think having and taking the time to do offsites to just get all the PMs in a room yeah. to talk through things, while sometimes tedious and you know challenging just from a timing perspective, is generally valuable. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it breaks the the unseen kind of buildup of whether it's political or whether it's competitive yeah. or whatever. Like a lot of that stuff just starts to build subconsciously within the team and within the organization, and just taking time maybe once a month, once a quarter, whatever it is, just to kind of break that down and just kind of reset everyone a little bit, I think really goes a long way to building that trust. Well, um, if you guys have any other homework for our listeners, I think a good set of homework would be to um, document. Document (laughs) it. (laughs) And if you have any tools or tips or tricks on how to document um, efficiently, um, please share. Rate and subscribe um, on Apple iTunes and all podcasts everywhere. Give us five stars. Come Shout see out us in during the Denver Startup Week. Denver Startup Week. What's the date again? Tuesday, September 17th. Okay. What time? At 10 a.m. At 1801. 1801, right. California. Yeah, California. I bought offices. Awesome. Check us out. Well, that wraps up this week's product coffee. We've all finished our coffee. Thanks for joining us. Now go level up. Please tell me we're recording this right <laughs> now. Like slurps and then. <laughs> my name is Patrick. Oh, I've got a coffee morning. in my mouth. <laughs> That's a bagel. Cookie monster. Get up. <laughs>